of the one group that's below all of them, which is Palestinians. Without Palestinians, there would be no glue to hold the Zionist ideology and Israeli society together. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. We're thrilled to have our good friend and colleague Max Blumenthal join us once again. Max is the editor of The Gray Zone. He's the co-host of Moderate Rebels and the author of many crucial books, including The Management of Savagery, The 51-Day War, and Goliath. Max, thanks so much for coming back on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for bringing me back. Let's uh, let's start with uh, the the investigation that you just published on the Gray Zone um, about the uh, manufactured anti-Semitism instances that uh, seem to be popping up all over, not just the US, but in Canada and in Europe. Um, The the title of your article is To Distract from Gaza Slaughter, Israel Lobby Manufactures Anti-Semitism Freakout. Um, Yeah, I mean, Asa, you, you were, uh, you were following this a lot too, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a kind of global phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So in your newest piece, you explain how the Israel lobby manufactured uh, manufactured a rash of anti-Semitic violence in order to smear the Palestine solidarity movement. Um, and this is your piece on the gray zone that Nora mentioned. Um, so could you explain what you found when you investigated this for our viewers uh, who may not have read the piece and just get into what you concluded? Well, yeah, Asa, you've been doing these kinds of investigations ever since, at least since Jeremy Corbyn came on the scene because the distortions and deceptions are very similar what the British Israel lobby wanted to do was paint Corbyn and everyone around him as an anti-Semite. And they would create often create these confrontations or create them with, you know, for example, Ken Livingstone or people around him to, to give the British public the impression that something was very wrong and that somehow a, a Nazi had slipped through and not a veteran anti-racist. And what they're doing in the US is basically trying to find an exit ramp from the scenes that even CNN was showing of media towers in Gaza being taken out for no reason other than the fact that the Israelis were a frustrated Goliath or entire families being exterminated and to replace the victimhood of Palestinians with that of the one of the most affluent, entitled, hyper-privileged demographic groups on the planet, American Jews. Uh, And so they did it by using deceptively edited video, uh, you know, video without context, a pile of allegations that couldn't be substantiated just to create a general atmosphere of hysteria. And of course, corporate media played along partly for ratings and partly because of uh, the longstanding sympathy of the kind of personnel that filled the management of corporate media outlets for Israel and their longstanding relationship with the main organization behind this narrative, which was the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, better known as the Arab Defamation League or the Defamation League, because all they do is defame Arabs. So I, what I did was like uh, what, you know, the, those like 
spelling cat dweebs call OSINT, uh, and they try to make their their craft seem so sophisticated and so vital, like it's this vital form of journalism. But all the all it's O O O S I N T open source Finding intelligence things on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Like you look at video and study it and examine it, or you um, study Google Earth images or whatever tweets facebook pages yeah finding things on the it's like stuff we used to do before they existed and we just we i always thought of it as like a kind of crude form of journalism that you do when you can't be in the field or you're not actually working with with documents and i didn't get documents from intelligence agencies by the way but that's beside the point um so i just looked at the videos that of the high profile incidents there was one video in particular that uh, Don Lemon on CNN, big, uh, you know, pro-Israel loudmouth host of CNN was constantly showing. And he had this young man, this 23-year-old from Long Island who had come into New York City, said he was attacked by a mob of Palestinians because he was wearing a kippah, a Jewish skull cap. And Lemon would show this mob beating this guy. Yeah, he was, he was getting a beatdown. One guy hit him with a crutch and it looked bad, but I watched the full video and the guy was wearing a gray hoodie, which covered his head at all times. In the video, there were clear photographic, uh, there were clear photographs of the incident afterwards showing that his head was completely covered. There was no way to know that he was Jewish. So clearly something had happened to precipitate this conflict. What's more, this guy, Joseph Borgen, actually, after getting hit a few times on the ground, got up and had to be held back by cops as he attempted to charge at the people who were hitting him and challenging them to fight. So he was really aggressive. Like if I were just walking down the street and someone committed a hate crime against me out of nowhere, I wouldn't be getting up and trying to fight them after some cops came and rescued me. Uh, and, you know, so I gathered witness testimony. The witness testimony corroborated the witness testimony I saw buried in media reports of the incident, which was that pro-Israel demonstrators on their way to a pro-Israel demonstration actually attacked the Palestinian young men on their way to a Palestine solidarity demonstration, both in Midtown New York, with the Israelis planning theirs in a very, you know, in a location where they would make sure they were near the Palestinians. And there were media reports of pro-Israel elements throwing bottles of juice and water out the window at Palestinians and their supporters as they marched by. Uh, so you basically have a story that's 180, 180 degrees different than the official version of events, which was conveyed to the American public about Jews just being beaten down. And, you know, I can go through incident after incident. They all follow the same pattern. But it got to a point where Joseph Biden, the president, and Kamala Harris, the vice president, denounced this wave of anti-Semitism. And it really creates the perception among at least some sector of Jewish Americans that they're under siege and that they need an Israel to protect them or a place to go take shelter. And when in fact, the reality is in the UK and the US, we're living in a golden age, we're much better off than Jews are in Israel. That is the least safe place for Jews to be. Uh, it's also a place where Jews are conscripted at age 18 into an apartheid army to carry out the uh, warehousing 
and even extermination of an indigenous population. So that's that's why this narrative is so not just false, but dangerous and insidious. And it's 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 nice to actually see lots of people, including more mainstream segments of the Jewish left than than I I represent, actually calling it out. It was interesting too because it followed the exact same um, uh, pattern um, that the you know how the media covered the um, the attacks on Gaza as though the clock started when you know the Palestinian resistance forces fired rockets into Jerusalem um, when you know when you pull back the camera and you look at the macro uh, situation of course that's not when the clock started um, yep. Israel is always the aggressor Israel always is the perpetrator um, and, uh, and so yeah kind of talk a little bit about how just these these kind of mechanisms of like presenting these stories completely devoid of any historical or actual factual contact context um and 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 you know if there's any change to um perception now i feel like after the attacks in may um there has been more of uh skepticism and criticism of uh, not just Israel and Israeli policy, but of the U.S.'s support of it. Um, do you see any, like, you know, relationship between the two? Well, just to address the first part of your point, um, David Sheen, longtime EI contributor and uh, Israeli-Canadian journalist living in Haifa, uh, wrote a really important piece for us at the Gray Zone <clears throat> on how Netanyahu's coalition was hanging by a thread in order to construct the coalition, he brought in these Kahanists, the, the extreme right of the far right of like the already right wing Israeli political spectrum. To, the right of the right to, of the right. Exactly. The I mean, it's right of the, of the far right. <laughs> I mean, it's what the you know Israeli philosopher uh, Yeshayahu Leibovitch would have called Judeo Nazis. That's essentially what they are. These very characters, I've followed them and filmed them rioting against Africans in Tel Aviv. They're, they do that in the South Hebron Hills. We know who they are. Everyone watching this knows who they are. And they were brought into the government by Netanyahu. And then they were kind of turned loose around Jerusalem when Netanyahu needed a war to stave off uh, what we see happening now, which is his coalition completely collapsing. And they gave him the war that they wanted that he wanted uh, by provoking Palestinians all around Jerusalem and generating a military or an, uh, a militarized response by the police around the Al-Aqsa compound. They, these were the events that precipitated what took place in Gaza. And, you know, as I think John Elmer pointed it out in one of your last podcasts that the resistance factions in Gaza were actually, you know, breaking out of their ghetto and sending a message to Israel over Jerusalem. This war began over Jerusalem, not over the siege in Gaza. So that's what precipitated the war. And yes, it was all edited out of the uh, mainstream media narrative in the US, which we saw consisted of Israel versus Hamas. That's how NPR, the Washington Post, the New York Times framed it, the Israeli-Hamas conflict. That's what they called it. But it was really much more of a Palestinian-wide uprising on all levels 
across Palestinian society, across walls, across uh, all these militarized barriers that Israel's constructed than we have seen at any time since the Second Intifada. So it really was, uh, you know, Jewish Israeli, the, the, the Jewish Israeli military versus Palestinian society. That's what was taking place. And David made an interesting point about my article in one, one section in particular, where there were these two Israelis who said that they were attacked in Times Square, or sorry, in, in Midtown East for speaking Hebrew. They were set upon by a Palestinian mob that happened to be kind of marching down the street just because they heard them speaking Hebrew. The reality in the video shows that one of the Israelis is holding an Israeli flag in his hand and starts punching Palestinians and initiates the violence. And then he begins to taunt them, chanting, long live the state of Israel as cops are dragging him away. They arrested him because he initiated the violence. And it turns out that these two characters were Golani Brigade veteran soldiers who had served in the 2014 assault on Gaza in which 551 children were killed. They, after the assault, they started a GoFundMe headlined with pictures of themselves in the thumbnail image, punching Palestinians in, in Midtown, raising money for the Golani Brigade. But they went on Fox News portraying themselves as victims of a hate crime. Then they went to Hebrew media, Hebrew language media in Israel on a far right network or right wing network, bragging to the host about how many Palestinians they punched. The host was celebrating them as these Jewish lions who were not like the the you know, weak hearted liberal Jews of America. And David said, that's the that's the Israeli society's entire narrative about what took place in Lod, for example, or Haifa, where the there were or, or Bat Yam, these these mixed cities where uh, mobs of Jewish extremists were brought in under police protection to assault Palestinians. And then Jews were portrayed as the victims of these assaults in the kind of official story. But privately, everyone was like, yeah, yeah, we 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 hurt them good. So that's it, it, it was a perfect microcosm for the narrative of Israeli society. I mean, and their narrative is, is, is so divorced from what anyone who uses social media sees. So I think that's right. where that, that was kind of the firewall for a lot of, I would say, progressives in the US, including people who are on the fence, who are not already like EI or Mondo Weiss or Gray Zone readers, like people who were questioning this, they would see footage produced uh, by Palestinian journalists in the Gaza Strip, tweeted out by people and young people in Gaza who speak perfect English. You know, they'd gone to the UN schools and they understand social media. And really, Twitter has advanced a lot since 2014. The audience is much wider. You can use more characters. It's easier to use video. So the documentation of this assault was much more vivid on Twitter, Instagram, everywhere than it had been in the past. And I think this provided a sort of a, a um, it, it transcended what, 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 whatever the Israel lobby was trying to convey in mainstream media or the limitations of the New York Times, which kind of is being, getting hailed for featuring all these murdered children on its cover, but which still conveyed pretty much the official narrative or the typical liberal Zionist line 
that most of its correspondents uphold throughout the 11 days of fighting around Gaza. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was very yeah. clear during the time that Israel's always been, Israel and its military and its defenders and its advocates have always been the ultimate aggressors posing as the victims. And, you know, I, I didn't see this covered very widely in, in mainstream media, but what you were talking about with, with extremist Jewish Israeli armed militias in, inside um, cities in present day Israel, were organizing themselves en masse in hundreds over, uh, so, over social media, over internal instant messaging applications like WhatsApp and Telegram. And this was being done either with them relying on the passive support of Israeli authorities or on the outright support of Israeli authorities. And there are these two Israeli liberal groups who are kind of who kind of infiltrated all of these all of these messaging messaging groups, which contained hundreds. And it's also contained um, settlers who lived in Jewish only colonies in the occupied West Bank who were planning and, and actually did um, arrive in Israeli cities in buses to attack Palestinians. Um, and, you know, these these two groups that that infiltrated those those um, those internal messaging apps where people were were organizing themselves into armed militias found some of the most vile correspondence between these groups, you know, just you, you cannot make this stuff up, like exchanging pictures of weapons, exchanging threats, talking about wanting to break Palestinian bones. There was one message that I, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that said, you know, it was all in Hebrew, but we did the, uh, did the translations of it and it said, uh, today we are Nazis, today we are no longer Jews, we are Nazis. And th there's just something so perverse that is happening right in front of everyone's eyes and I and I understand that it's always been either the right or the extreme right in Israel but I truly feel like there is an even there's a move to even go further than that there the the society is just going so extremist and so right-wing and we're seeing that with the new Bennett Lapid uh rotation now yeah, one of, one of the things that, that, I mean, that line really stuck with me too from your piece that you wrote with uh, our colleague earlier with Nima Tamara um, about the Judeo-Nazis, you know, really. I mean, look, I mean, th this, is, th this is really a theme. You mentioned, Max, earlier my work on uh, the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn and the bogus anti-Semitism allegations um, against them over the years and one of the one of the recurring themes in that was this uh, attempted ban on any kind of raising of the word nazi in the context of israel you know any kind of historical comparison or um anything like that and you know that's been in enshrined in the um the so-called eumc working definition of uh, of uh, uh, the, the uh, working definition of anti-Semitism by the um, IHRA. Um, you know, that you're not supposed to make these kind of, you're not supposed to mention the Nazis, um, don't mention the Germans. Um, but like, I mean, again, this is another example of reality contradicting 
you know, reality violates this definition, you know? Well, they're violate. Yeah. You have Zionists calling them violating the IHRA. Right. Yeah. They, 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 this is their words, you know, it's not, (laughs) are we not supposed to report the truth? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the ADL is going to condemn that. I mean, they're, (laughs) it's sort of considered offensive to mention Lenny Brenner's book on 51 documents of Zionist Nazi collaboration. He, this is a sort of blue collar historian, Lenny Brenner. He was, uh, uh, you know, fil- affiliated with a lot of kind of Trotskyist socialist groups. He was the treasurer for Stokely Carmichael for a time. I got to meet him once and uh, he put together a book called, with the title that I just cited. And it's just documents uh of that that provide evidence of collaboration between the zionist movement and nazi germany and there was a relationship or a marriage of convenience between the labor wing of zionism and nazi germany to bring jewish people and property over and allow the german government of adolf hitler to take a portion to take a cut and to basically bypass and eliminate, destroy the Jewish global boycott of Nazi Germany. Um, American Zionist groups were basically told, stop boycotting Nazi Germany. And, uh, you know, because, you know, they're, they're, they're helping us out in historic Palestine, build this state that we're dreaming of. And, you know, Hitler himself was very aware of this relationship. You had people in the uh, Jewish office working under Eichmann, like Leopold von Mildenstein, who was actually taking tours of the kibbutzim and very admiring of what the Zionist movement was doing in Palestine. He said the Trumpeldorians, referring to Joseph Trumpeldor, one of the heroes of Likudnik Zionism or revisionist Zionism, are very similar to us, uh, the, you know, the, the brown shirts and their uh, connection to the blood and soil of their movement. And so, uh, when von Mildenstein actually returned to Germany from this trip he took of kibbutzim, he received a, a medallion. On one side was, unfortunately, the Star of David that the Zionist movement had co-opted as its symbol. And on the other side was a swastika, the symbol of the Nazi party. And uh, when I met Lenny Brenner, he actually had brought this medallion, which he managed to pick up at a uh, auction. And it was just so disturbing. It felt like my like when I held it in my hand, it felt like I was holding something that was a thousand degrees, and it was like burning in my hand. It was just so disturbing to actually see it. This relationship was not just political or economic. There was a ideological dimension to it. The Stern Gang that ultimately produced Yitzhak Shamir as prime minister. He was one of their leaders. Um, the Stern gang that assassinated Volki Bernadotte because he attempted to organize the um, return of Palestinian refugees who had been cleansed in 1948 as UN special representative to the Holy Land. The Stern gang that carried out the Der Yassin massacre in 1933 when Hitler was uh, rose to power. He wasn't actually elected, but when he rose to power, the Stern gang issued a letter pledging uh, or offering a sort of strategic partnership and pledging to establish a fascist Jewish theocracy in the Holy Land. Um, I mean, nothing really 
came of that, but it shows that there's an ideological dimension to all of this. And it's more complex than um, indicating the revisionist Zionist assassinated Haimar Lasserov, who was the um, uh, second in charge of the labor Zionist movement. He was in charge of the Jewish agency because he was overseeing that transfer agreement with uh, Nazi Germany that I mentioned before. So there were elements of the revisionist movement that were opposed to all of this, but there was still an, a mutual shared affinity. Now you flash forward to the contemporary era of Zionism where Kahanism, the movement that reveres Meyer Kahana, this fascist rabbi who was killed, who basically helped popularize or gave voice to the feeling in Israeli society that Palestinians should all be ethnically cleansed, uh, that there should be sort of a second Nakba, and that a Jewish exclusivist theocratic state should be established that would just kind of end the whole situation of, of uh, negotiation once and for all. The mainstreaming of this movement really created the context for what we saw take place in these mixed cities. And I remember, you know, I was, I was staying, when I was working on Goliath back in like, <clears throat> I started work on it in like 2009 and I was staying in, in Jaffa in 2010. And I was actually kind of getting the sense that these elements, these Kahanist elements were starting to operate in the area, particularly like 10 or 15 minutes South in Bat Yam, which was a mixed area where a lot of Russian and Mizrahi uh, lower and lower middle-class Jews were living among Palestinians and there was a lot of tension. And the Kahanists were coming in from the West Bank and from the extremist settlements and attempting to basically pour lighter fluid on those simmering flames. I was reading their, their newsletter that they, they would put it out online and they had like operation, I forget what they called it, like seal the locks or something but they would target Palestinian homes by filling their locks with glue and cement to make it impossible for them to get back in their houses. And this is the kind of thing they were doing to try to turn up the heat in these areas. It's uh, something they're doing all across Palestine, but particularly in areas inside Israel. And like, this is the context to the context of this uh, latest escalation. So what we saw there, um, was totally expected with basically a night of broken glass uh, in Bat Yam, where these extremist mobs, many of them were settlers who came in from the West Bank, were smashing the glass storefronts of Palestinian businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if you if you know these, if you know the businessmen and you know that class, they really uh, are very uncomfortable with any form of protest against occupation. They're always trying to maintain good relations with the. Jewish majority uh, just to secure their place. And yet they still got attacked. People were beaten. Oren Ziv, the photojournalist from Active Stills, he actually documented pretty clearly how the police were directly working with these mobs. And the function these mobs played was actually kind of as a paramilitary, like what we see in Colombia right now, where the bike police are a little bit overstretched. So they bring in just groups of plainclothes thugs who've been filmed shooting protesters in the streets. Israeli the deputy mayor of Lid actually described them in that way. Like he mm -hmm. said, he said they were volunteers coming in from the West Bank. He's, I, I believe that was his right. exact word, right? Was that, is that right, Tamar? Yeah, volunteers. Yeah. He said they were coming to protect Jewish homes and that he advises all Palestinian citizens to remain in their homes 
because they're coming to help out. They're coming to protect Jewish homes in Israel. I mean, and the, the security forces, if you can call them that, you want to call them the apartheid maintenance forces that might be more accurate. They were overstretched because of what was happening in Jerusalem, because of what was beginning to uh, take form in and around Gaza. And the pressure on the Israeli leadership to completely suppress this uprising inside 48 Palestine or Israel was enormous. This was this is really the ultimate fear of the Jewish Israeli public. It's very similar to the fear of the Southern agrarian class during the 1850s, uh, particularly after John Brown's uh, organized uprising around Harper's Ferry of a massive, or, or, or Nat Turner's uprising of a massive slave revolt in an area where they're basically outnumbered. That fear has led to violence in the past. It's led to the killing of 13 demonstrators around Malfahim and Haifa in 2000. And the same thing happened. Ehud Barak was um, prime minister then, and he met with all the security principals. And he said, you have a green light to do whatever's necessary. Netanyahu took it to another level. He staged a nationally televised press conference with the security chiefs behind him. And he said, you have a green light to do whatever's necessary. And there's not going to be a commission of inquiry. He was referring to the Aura Commission that investigated the killing of those 13 demonstrators in 2000 and found that Israeli, Israel, the Israeli government was systematically discriminating against Palestinian citizens. Netanyahu was like, none of that's going to happen. Just go for it. Bring in the thugs, let the dogs out, do whatever's necessary. So, I mean, and that's what, thank you. Thanks to social media, we were able to see how vicious the suppression was. And it's ongoing as we speak, you know, as you've been reporting at EI with the mass arrest of hundreds of young people. In, in your piece, just to kind of circle back, um, yeah. you report on how Palestine solidarity um, and leftist or progressive groups, instead of debunking, questioning, or even asking for any evidence, instinctively responded and continue to do so by condemning anti-Semitism, um, despite there being little or no evidence of it. Um, you know, th this is what um, Corbyn fell victim to, <laughs> instead of like completely dismissing this, this charge of anti-Semitism, he, um, you know, began apologizing for it. Um, why, why is this so dangerous? And, and, you know, what, what should Palestine solidarity activists uh, be doing instead of, you know, um, kind of playing into the, the, this like Israel lobby tactic of trying to make everything anti-Semitism? Well, there were, there was a active campaign among the kind of like NGO wing of some element of Palestine solidarity on Twitter to basically apologize for a wave of anti-Semitism that wasn't, that didn't exist along with, I, I saw a lot of tweets sort of simultaneously denouncing the Assadists in our ranks. Uh, or maybe they meant the ass sadists. <laughs> I think they're referring to Assadists, um, who basically people who people who opposed regime change in Syria. Yeah, that was very interesting. Like that was happening. I mean, at exactly the moment Gaza was being bombed, these sort of. Well, I mean, it wasn't yeah. a lot of people, but it was like a few very vocal people on Twitter who used that exact moment to sort of say, 
oh, if you're retweeting or, you know, posting articles from any of the following, you are X, Y, Z, you know, it, it's, it was very interesting timing, let's say. It was, yeah, it, it always seems to come at the wrong time or for them the right time at a time of unprecedented unity around Palestine or, or, or we're kind of coming back into this moment of unity. Let's divide everyone again over and over uh, the most divisive or one of the most divisive issues, but they're not, I don't think they're thinking that way as with the anti-Semitism charge, this class of activists is always appealing to elite uh, influence and authority and trying to demonstrate their worthiness to Western and particularly American elites. Uh, and their entire campaign around Palestine hinges on acceptance by those elements that someday we will be accepted in Congress or we will be accepted by mainstream media and they will make room for us and provide representation. The New York Times will have a, Mus a, a good Muslim columnist who cares about Palestinians. And then the situation will be resolved. Uh, who needs like all those like bearded Shia guys who are providing uh, Gaza resistance factions with the know-how and weapons to actually hit back? That's 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 uncouth. That's their mentality, and that mentality is. I, I mean, I think it was repudiated this time by a lot of people, a, a majority within the movement, who were like, they are trying to criminalize us. We saw what happened in the UK. Um, we are not going to apologize for having rallies and chanting intifada. And that is what the ADL was demanding. Yeah. If you actually look at their report, the ADL's report where they lay out their case that there's a wave of anti-Semitism and an uptick of anti-Semitic incidents because of um, the, what they called the Israel-Hamas conflict, the, it, it, there's, there's no there there. They're literally defining rallies across the country as anti-Semitic incidents. And so why allow them to define you as an anti-Semite? and then criminalize you. In the UK, I think we, I mean, the, the, the getting hundreds of thousands of people out in the street to demonstrate for Palestine was of course, it was about the like defending the basic humanity of Palestinians who were being exterminated and dispossessed. It was about asserting international law. It was about opposing apartheid, but it was also about defending the democratic rights that are under complete assault by the Israel lobby and its allies among the British elite and saying, we are here and we're not gonna be criminalized for basically being decent moral people who are sick of your like little imperial schemes. Yeah, it and, was very uh, very similar in the UK. Like as, as you mentioned, like what one week, one weekend during the war, there was 150,000 demonstrating in London and there was demonstrations all over the UK as well. And then the following weekend, there was 200,000 people demonstrating in London, filling up Hyde Park. And again, demonstrations all over the UK. Well, it's um, even but, after the ceasefire too. Which is, yeah, yeah, it carried on mm -hmm. after the ceasefire. There was um, act activists who did sit-ins on top of um, Elbit factories, Israeli weapons manufacturers. And this, you know, this unprecedented moment of unity and then these kind of sabotage, different sabotage strategies are coming in. And someone from uh, Dave Rich of the Community Security Trust, which is this, Israel lobby group essentially but it fulfills quite a similar role in the UK uh, as the ADL quite a similar group in some ways 
he actually tweeted a photo. It's funny you mentioned about Intifada because he tweeted a photo from a demonstration. I forget exactly what he said, but it was a photo of a sign that just said victory to the Intifada, I think it was. It was it was in something about Intifada. Um, and he said, this is due hatred on the streets of yeah. London, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it, it was exactly the same, exactly the same MO. And, and what look at the pro-Israel rallies in, in, in and around London. I mean, who was there? Tommy yeah, Robinson. Right. Yeah. He was like the star of the show. He comes in, everyone's taking selfies with him. It's like, you know, th 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 there's, there's, this, there's this is who they're left with. This is the thing. Yeah. Like there was, I mean, there was rumors going around and um, I mean, I could mention this is rumors, um, but uh, you know, unable to verify them, but there was people uh, online saying that, um, and this is Zionists who were saying it like pro Israel people who were saying it, they, they reckoned that Tommy Robinson was actually invited uh, by some or some of the organizers of the demonstration to essentially to make up the numbers. And I, I read, I'm on the Zionist Federation's uh, newsletter. Um, and uh, I just read in it today that they were saying that people were, came from all around the country to attend the demonstration. Yeah. So they were busting people in uh, and still they only got, you know, less, you know, they, uh, press reports said 1500 people. So it wasn't very many people. I mean, you, even if, if, if I were some pro-Israel, if I really believed in Israel, I wouldn't have shown up at one of these demos. It's yeah. like a time of shame. It's yeah. Chuck Schumer, who called himself Charles Shomer, the protector of Israel at one point. He hasn't said a word about this. Nobody wants to say anything. No one's, no one's piping up to defend Israel. It's kind of a moment of hanging your head. So, if, yeah. of course, if you're going to fill up your rally, it's going to be like, the BNP and EDL and, and <laughs> Tommy Robinson, like those are the people that are going to come out in the, in, in the U S the largest pro-Israel rallies were in Los Angeles. And that's where the most fervently uh, almost fascistic pro-Israel elements live. And the their rallies were, their rallies just looked absurd to any yeah. rational person. <laughs> the, 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 the one mass they going down son. Rodeo drive or something like, you know, yeah. that video was in mad. Beverly Hills. Yeah. Like, who are you appealing to? Like, I commented well, that, on Twitter themselves. that I thought it seemed, was it, was that supposed to be like a threat against Paris Hilton or something, you know, like, <laughs> well, it was just a way of us showing how oppressed they are in Beverly Hills. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, but Max, uh, Actually, Max, one just, of the things I, yeah. I, I really liked, and it was a great piece and we'll link to it. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was a bit towards the beginning where you're quoting from the official Israel account where it's saying, mm. to all our Jewish brothers and sisters around the world, we see you, we hear yeah. you, we stand with you. And they posted a blue square in clear <laughs> imitation of the, the black square, uh, you know, oh the God. Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, which was criticized by some people, you know, in, in itself anyway, but very clearly they're trying to sort of copy and co-opt this kind of uh, movement. And I really like the way you put it in the piece where you said, the Israel foreign ministry has capitalized on the moral panic of alleged anti-Semitism with a tweet invoking the intersectional social justice lexicon of woke millennials. And Zoomers, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that really shows you how hollow that kind of language is and how easily right. co-opted it is. Because whether right. it's by the Israeli foreign ministry or the CIA with its sort of woke recruitment ad, the language can be easily transferred to support imperialism or Zionism. And I always said Zionism is the it's terminal. Fit. It's, well, it's the sort of terminal 
uh, stage or, or, or um, a sort of, it's kind of like right-wing woke politics. It is basically woke politics for uh, right-wing Jewish supremacists. This is something we saw a lot again in the Labour Party, the campaign against Corbyn, where there was a lot of uh, invocation of this kind of language to sort of say, um, by these people who called themselves Labour Zionists or left-wing Zionists, to say, oh, well, Zionism is just self-determination for the Jewish people, you know, um, and, you know, oh, a Jew is saying this, so you should believe us, you know, that this is, this is anti-Semitism, we know anti-Semitism when, when we see it, and, um, you know, you can't question that. If you question that, then you are anti-Semitic. And it just became this self-perpetuating fantasy that was, I mean, the, the, the people who did this were really a minority within a minority, but there was this kind of inordinate fear that this successfully generated, you know, and, and people were really intimidated by it. Um, uh, going yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's intimidating to take on the, identitarian arguments of people who are pushing, for example, when people are pushing uh, regime change in Syria, which is a goal that the neo to Syrians, then yeah, listen, listen to Syrian voices. And of, <clears throat> of course, the voices of people in West Aleppo, where the majority of Aleppans live, or uh, the people in Damascus, or uh, the, the loyalist population, which simply is the majority right now, uh, they don't count. And they're fascists anyway. Um, but it's intimidating if you're not a Syrian and somebody comes out for, who's like in, you know, at SOAS or whatever, and they say, I'm a Syrian, shut up. Like, we know better than you, then you have to yeah. shut up. That's the kind of uh, identitarian argument that's been, or, or tactic that's been used uh, for several years. It really has been effective on Twitter, which is where the most people, right, where you see a lot of the political confrontation and one-on-one -on -one arguments and uh you know it's effective in in open letters also to try to shut down a critique of anti-imperialist critique I, I think it's sort of it's being exposed right now as the yeah, I mean, same it, tactics like are being employed the same tactics are being employed by white imperialist oppressors yeah, I mean, it, it, like you conclude in the piece, I mean, it, this really is kind of uh, it, what it represents with what's been going on recently in the Palestine Solidarity Movement in North America. Um, it represents a kind of Corbynization, really. And they're trying to, um, Ali always says, they're trying to do a Corbyn on, like yeah. they tried to do a Corbyn on Bernie Sanders um, in the event, you know, he didn't win the primary anyway. Um, and now they're trying to expand the tactic more widely. I mean, you conclude in the piece, we are all Jeremy Corbyn now. And I think that's uh, accurate. You know, there's a real kind of uh, push. It was successful. Like it wasn't successful in the maximal goal of persuading people to support Israel, people on the left to support Israel. If anything, it had the opposite effect of that long term. But it was really successful and it's really primary goal which was to sabotage the movement it really it did divide people um and it intimidated people um and it and corbyn didn't become prime minister you know yeah and it was i thought it was inevitable from the beginning i was surprised he did so well in 2017 but that was because i mean i think that it, it, it the, yeah the anti-semitism 
issue is not what cost Jeremy Corbyn the red wall. It's not what cost Jeremy Corbyn so many votes, but it no. is what demoralized people in the inner circle of his movement. It, and, and, and also the grassroots of the movement, the, grassroots, like the foot soldiers, yeah. the foot soldiers who went door to door. Um, they were, I mean, just talking to people, they weren't there in 2019 to the extent that they were in 2017 because people were so demoralized at being expelled from the Labour Party or driven out from the Labour Party. I think it's what created space for this kind of metropolitan professional consultant class to come in and say, you need to revise the Brexit vote and you need to start listening to us instead of listening to your own constituents. And that's what led to the collapse. But it's just a good case study in never giving an inch to pro-Israel forces, never give an inch to your adversaries, whether they're imperialists, pro-Israel forces, woke imperialists, <clears throat> whatever they are, if you give them an inch, they will take a mile and they will never accept an apology, no matter a good faith apology. They always act in bad faith. So you just have to look at the situation as it is, you have to hold on to your version of reality and mm -hmm. defend it at all costs. And I was a little bit concerned before I started producing a series of tweets that provided the architecture for this investigation that maybe I would get it wrong. Maybe there were some serious anti-Semitic attacks where Jews were attacked as Jews and then I would you know, be humiliated and have to issue some kind of apology. And I studied the issue. I mean, I just looked closely at all of these incidents and I felt confident coming out and saying, this is utter bullshit. This is what they did in the UK. And I'm willing to defend that, but other people uh, face harsher consequences than I do because they're not Jewish. If you're Palestinian in the US, uh, it's much harder to come out and say this but you have to be willing to hold on to your version of reality because you're not dealing with good faith actors. You're dealing with people who literally want to criminalize your right to defend your own, your, to defend your rights. Yeah. I mean, that, that process you described just now is something I went through internally many times in reporting on the Labour Party. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, if they're, I mean, uh, the way I always put it is this, and what, and what many activists within the Labour Party made the point that, um, and Moshe Makover made this point as, as a, you know, his academic background is mathematics and logic. So he said, logically, in a party of half a million people, the Labour Party, statistically, if, if you compare that to um, the rates of prejudice in the UK and rates of anti-Semitism in the UK, statistically, it's impossible that there will be no anti-Semites in the Labour Party. And, but if anything, it's it's actually, when you actually look at the number of instances of, of even of allegations of anti-Semitism, it's incredibly, incredibly low. So the, it, uh, some marginal examples of anti-Semitism actually taking place does not negate the fact that a vast amount of high profile cases were either exaggerated or outright fabricated, you know, just, in most cases, it is just Zionists accusing anti-Zionism of being anti-Semitic. They're just redefining the definition of Zionism. I, I, I told the story. Semitism. Totally. I, I told the story a bunch of times. I don't know. If, I think probably I told it, it when we had you on Moderate Rebels. But 
one of the first times Corbyn was attacked in the context of, you know, being a leadership candidate for being an anti-Semite was uh, after he hosted me. He wasn't even present at Portcullis House in uh, Parliament. Mm. Yeah, I remember. And yeah. they made up this this guy Richard Millet, who's just this notorious ultra-Zionist fabricator, concocted this story that I was introduced by a, a Holocaust denier. And uh, but I wasn't. I was introduced by Corbyn's staff and. I got there an hour late. Um, I just completely screwed up my schedule and you all know how I am with scheduling. So, and yeah, so anyway, uh, I got there. You can see like in the video, I have this huge like cowlick on my head. I'm just all messed up. Like I'm still extremely <laughs> jet lagged. I'd been dealing with, you know, so many things back home. And I just walk in the room and give a talk. It went off very well. Um, but apparently there was some public forum to make up for the other hour. I wasn't there. And some guy I'd never heard of got up and talked and said nothing offensive. And Richard Millett said he was a Holocaust denier. And I went and looked for the evidence that he was. And the, he, there was some, you know, he's like an old man with a big beard and he, you know, maybe he looks eccentric. So maybe that was off-putting to some people, but he's holding a sign that's basically comparing Israel to Nazi Germany. Uh, and you can say, oh, that's wrong. That's offensive. But that's not Holocaust denial. So I don't know where that even came from, but it made it to the Daily Mail. Uh, I think it, it was reproduced everywhere. And I, I mean, the British to... press is just the worst in the world. Like, I, I really yeah. think it is. I mean, this is the point Glenn Greenwald makes sometimes. Like, it, they they do just make things up. And it and this is the facts did not matter to them at all. There was any anything they could throw at the wall to just get rid of Corbyn in any kind of way. Well, and here's my, my point. Well, let me just make my quickly just wrap up the story, which is that I went to Jeremy's chief of staff and I said, like, we should take this down. Like, you know, this is one of the first attacks and they're going to, they're not going to stop coming. And he was, he said, we've decided the people are with us and there is no need to respond. Uh, this just won't matter. And that's mm. the way they continued to conduct themselves. Um, I also, I also, I also had uh, met with Seamus Milne. He's a great guy. Uh, I, someone I really was, he's an, uh, someone who has inspired my work uh, with his own columns and writings. And I, I was coming from Germany where I, there, the German Bundestag had introduced legislation to declare me and David Sheen, uh, and, uh, and persona non grata. And we were branded as anti-Semites from the moment we entered the country by people who weren't even Jewish. Uh, so uh, I told him like this anti-Semitism thing is, you know, out of control. It's going to come for you next. And I don't, I just don't feel like he, I conveyed the message sufficiently to him or that he, he internalized it. I think they never really got it. Um, no. And and then you had Jeremy Corbyn apologizing for standing next to some mural that had guys around a table with money who are just global bankers. And he apologized to the Jewish community for that. It was just so bizarre to me. Uh, I was always, you know, across the Atlantic trying to figure out what the hell was going on with his political operation and, and where was the anti-Semitism. So... Yeah, I mean, the, and there's no consequences for this bad faith, you know, propagandistic Hasbara, you know, uh, misreporting. I mean, on, on our side, if we get if we get anything wrong, if there is, you know, any 
anything that we misreported or, or, you know, I mean, God forbid, like we would never fabricate evidence, but if that was found to be true, you know, we, we would be uh, rightly culpable and we'd be taken to task. But, but for, for the Zionists, for, you know, the mainstream corporate press, when Don Lemon, you know, presents this complete fabrication of an anti-Semitic in- incident, there is no consequences. There is no public apology. There is no like reinvestigation of an incident and and any sort of mea culpa. Um, and that and I you know the Israel lobby and the Israel Israeli government knows this very well. That's why the you know the Golani Brigade soldiers can go and fundraise after this kind of thing. Well, I, I think it's why it's so important to have independent media. Uh, I got the sense that in the UK, independent media was kind of a new thing when, you know, the, with the attacks that the Canary UK was getting and Squawk Box and all of these yeah. uh, outlets that emerged to support Corbyn. Um, the, the, you know, we've had this kind of uh, sort of scaffolding of, or like an echo chamber to support various movements and political parties in the US since the mid 2000s. Um, but it felt like it was like a new thing in the UK. Yeah. But there has to be an apparatus to circumvent the power of mainstream media. I see a lot of, you know, uh, younger Palestinians who are, in, you know, media oriented and highly educated and want, and they, they wonder why they're not getting enough of a platform in the Washington Post or the New York Times. And they're starting to open up their pages to them, but you're just never going to, get the traction that you deserve there to offset the uh, phony deceptive narratives of the entrenched Israel lobbyists in these publications, whether it's Brett Stevens and, or Barry Weiss, the former New York Times columnist, or people who are basically, they're not Israel lobbyists, but they're Israel sympathizers like Jake Tapper or Wolf Blitzer who feel threatened and attacked by the sheer presence of Palestinians in media, you have to really focus on building up independent media. And instead of breaking into mainstream media, you should be focused on breaking it, just completely (laughs) discrediting it at every level. There should be, I I just feel so, I wouldn't say resentful, but I I don't understand why so many self-described socialists want to write for the Guardian. Like, what are you thinking? You should be trying to like utterly break the guardian into a thousand pieces you should be supporting the canaries boycott of the guardian yeah i mean i think as well um you're right like we're never going to get the kind of traction in those in those corporate outlets uh, but there, we should just just and, define them as the enemy that they are yeah. that they've destroyed our movement again and again and again and i really don't care if they throw us a little crumbs by putting photographs of murdered children on the cover once and then going back to the way they were yeah, yeah a, i don't it, think these a, crumbs sorry i don't think these crumbs are even for us i think it's just to whitewash their own conscience and to try to appear as uh you know, as sympathizing with Palestinians, but this is not- And it's for their bottom line as well, because they see that there's an audience for it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's both Haaretz and the New York Times who published those front page stories of the 68 or the, you know, the almost 70 Palestinian and 
uh, I think two Israeli children who were who were killed in in during Israel's uh, massacre in May. And you know, I I, I saw a lot of um, tweets saying how this is unprecedented and it's welcome, and even mainstream media is catching up to it. Uh, but I really don't think it's about us at all, and I don't think it yeah. says anything. Uh, different about the New York Times or Haaretz. I think it's like a cleanse of their own conscience. And who are they? I mean, we've seen how many former New York Times Jerusalem Bureau chiefs and correspondents have children in the Israeli military. Uh, Jody Verdorin, she's off basically promoting liberal Zionism at the forward, which has become like this full-on racist publication or became under um, what's her name? Batshit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's just so yeah. patently obvious when you look at the personnel who they put in Jerusalem, in their Jerusalem bureau, which is in the home of Hassan right. and Gada Karmi, a basically stolen Arab home, what the New York times is and which part of the society it feels attached to and whose anxieties it absorbs and which narrative it conveys and how hard it is for Palestinians to even affect the narrative against that that inertia, that ideological, political, and ethno-religious inertia. It's very difficult. I always was like, why don't they send some like Mexican-American guy to be the bureau chief? Or like, why is there, you know, why has there never been, they just always, have to have a Jewish bureau chief in Jerusalem who happens to be a Zionist. Exactly. Why is that? And like familial, you know, ties to the Israeli military and, and the entire apparatus of, of the Israeli state. And if you call that out, you're an anti-Semite. Right. I mean, yeah. But it's like enough is enough. I mean, Tom Friedman bought that house from, you know, he bought this stolen Arab home when he was the bureau chief and you've just had a steady succession of bureau chiefs completely, I mean, it, and Tamara is right. It's not only what they do report, it's what they refuse to re or don't report. A seven-year-old was arrested today by Israeli forces. Um, you know, I'm sure these guys will do a great job facing down the men of Hezbollah, by the way, if they're <laughs> practicing on seven-year-olds. But I mean, that could be a headline. Uh, I, I When I was writing Goliath, it was like, there's just so many crazy stories that I couldn't believe that. And of course they would never make it into the New York times or any mainstream outlet. And I was just gathering them every day, uh, either from alternative media on my own through word of mouth or uh, Hebrew language or Arabic language media. I remember a group of uh, Palestinian women from Nablus, one of the most you know, harshly occupied cities in the West Bank, were brought to uh, Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem. They were allowed to go across the apartheid wall to observe the historic suffering and oppression of Jews. That was the, uh, the condition of their coming into Jerusalem was they got to go to the Holocaust Museum. And as soon as they get there, um, Jewish children, groups of Jewish children, religious nationalist Jewish children, and I'm talking about like children, like eight years old, 10 years old, start attacking them, calling them and like throwing things at them. And they were basically subjected to a hate crime at the Holocaust Museum. So, I mean, that was just one of those stories. Why, why, why wasn't that in the New York Times? That perfectly shows you what Israeli society was becoming 
that was that's that showed you what was on display in Bat Yam, this extremist eliminationist hatred that's becoming mainstream, but it's it's never conveyed. So it always comes as a shock to Americans when we see the right. real Israel on social media. Right. And and especially for you know American Jews, um, you know, our 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 community. <laughs> it's like this is not the real our Israel. community. This, I hate right. saying that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not like. I don't know what community <laughs> we're talking about here. There are like a hundred different American Jewish communities. Like <laughs> I, I walk through Borough Park and I'm not in their community. No, so. no. But they. But that's the thing about Zionism is that it. You know, we move as a monolith. Um, what whatever happens in Israel happens to us. Um, and and the you know like when when these liberal Zionists were waking up in the middle of mid May with Israeli airstrikes against people's homes and tens of thousands of people, you know, um, huddling in United Nations uh, centers. Oh, this is not our Israel. You know, this is not. I, you know, Israel is a piece. I mean, Avi Meyer right was saying this. Um, yeah. the Head of the 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 uh, American Jewish Committee. Um, you know, this is, this is not who we are, this kind of thing. But that's like the dark secret of his, of Jewish Israeli society is that there are all of these fractious communities. There are so many of them. They actually don't like each other. Like the Russian Jews in Israel who often don't have any connection to religious Judaism. Many of them don't even like it there. They were just kind of tricked or dumped there by the Jewish agency the Mizrahi Jews, they don't like the Ashkenazi elite in Tel Aviv. The Ashkenazi elite call them Arsim and they they hate them. They look down on them the way like, you know, elite uh, liberals who believe in science uh, look down on Trumpers. And there's just all of these divides. I mean, intense and intense hatred. And they all get, they all unite around their resentment of the one group that's below all of them, which is Palestinians. Right. Without Palestinians, there would be no glue to hold the Zionist ideology and Israeli society together. Without the <laughs> occupation, there would be no reason for uh, Jewish Americans who donate all this money to the ADL to actually come together in support of Israel. Uh, they, and then they would lose their own identity because without Israel, then all they have left is religion and very they're not secular Jews aren't into that. So mm -hmm. this whole Zionist movement, the global Zionist movement needs Palestinians so badly. It needs the occupation. It needs apartheid. It needs these constant conflicts to unite it and to provide it with this kind of dynamic way forward in the, in the, in lieu of, in the place of an actual uh, national vision Israel has no national vision going forward. There's no five-year plan. There's no one-year plan. It's just to win like these series of wars and keep this fractious society united. That's the dark secret. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. it's very disturbing when you think about its implications for policy and politics. You know, Israeli society has advanced to the point where it's adopted its own form of, uh, of identity politics where it's, you know, People are more into their their uh, Jewish national heritage prior to coming to 
the Holy Land now than they were before. Like you'll see in Tel Aviv, there'll be a restaurant that says shtetl and you'll see Iraqi Jews selling sbih, which is a kind of like Iraq, traditional Iraqi Jewish sandwich. And there's like a Mizrahi group of like, I don't want to call them ultra leftists around Tel Aviv, but they're so, they're just obsessed with Mizrahi identity to the point where like uh, they are unable to uh, be part of a, a mass social movement. And but it but it it still all flows back into Zionism because they have this idea in Zionism that there's nowhere else to go, especially for the Mizrahi and Russian Jews, and that they're the ones who have to fight. And we haven't even mentioned the Ethiopian Jews who uh, suffered, I think, the most in their transition into Israeli society. They were told that their traditional form of prayer was not actual Jewish prayer. Um, although it predated the European ultra-Orthodox forms of prayer, they um, some were subjected to coerced sterilization in mm -hmm. the camps. Uh, the um, I, I don't I don't know what they're like, they're like camps for they weren't really refugees, but the camps right, where they were transferred like before settlement camps. Something like camps, they were basically right? duped transit into taking yeah. transit camps by um, a by uh you know jewish ngos that have offices in new york they were coerced into taking depo provera and uh they if you know just from my experience in the west bank like being in the villages around the wall that were doing the popular struggle um nora i know you've been around that a lot um and being in the south hebron hills when there was an Israel, uh, an Ethiopian commander for a unit, you would know that um, they were going to be less inclined to negotiate, or uh, things were going to escalate pretty quickly, Why? because they had because they had to demonstrate to the Ashkenazi and Mizrahi members of their unit uh -huh. that they were tough and that they were loyal, right. because right. there was only one group below them, and otherwise they were at the bottom of Israeli society. And actually, right. we started to see Black Lives Matter marches and rallies in mm -hmm. inside Israel by the Ethiopian population. And it was the first time that the Israeli police used the skunk spray on a domestic population was against those marchers. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but Israel uh, has historically um, uh, stationed Ethiopian and Druze uh, soldiers um, at like, you know, the, kind of the border areas um, around the Gaza boundary. Because um, they kind of, they wanted to the human make wall. sure that the, uh, yeah, the, the Ashkenazi soldiers were, were safe. Well, um, I mean, the whole population that lives close to Gaza was basically put there as a human wall. And there the first the Mizrahim, then the Russians, because the Ashkenazim didn't want to be there. And then they turn right wing because they're absorbing the consequences of Israel's occupation and siege of Gaza, which is rocket fire. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole population of Sterot is fully right wing. They're the ones who call for an assault on, on Gaza before anyone else, their, their mayor um, and their municipal authorities. And there are you know, lower middle class and lower class Mizrahim then Ashkelon, it's Russians and Mizrahim. That used to be called Askalan, and their population was rounded up in 1948, spent two years 
in a concentration camp effectively. And then they were dumped in Gaza. And then you just bring in the human wall of the people that the Ashkenazim don't want around them in Tel Aviv or uh, Netanya or wherever they live. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's disgusting and it helps feed into the dynamic of militarism. Mm. Um, <laughs> let's, let's pivot to uh, your thoughts on the Israeli government. I mean, people are like, you know, I can see the New York Times, for example, the LA Times over the weekend, um, you know, were kind of like, oh, this could be the end of the Netanyahu administration. And we, you know, Israel could get someone who's more like, you know, in, in the dovish uh, camp, for example. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, on the Israeli elections and, and the significance of them at this point? I mean, I, I, I get, I'm getting, I get tired of all the horse race politics. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I feel like more free to, to like unburden myself of my true thoughts about Israeli politics, which is like <laughs> that I, you know, was happy when Netanyahu was reelected because <laughs> he helped lift the mask on the real Israel that <laughs> would have still been massacring Palestinians and occupying them under a labor or Kadima or blue and white government. There is no alternative. And if anything, the labor party and these non-Likud governments have been more blood soaked. Uh, Netanyahu, however, was able to communicate Israel's position really well on the world stage. He was like this really effective con artist or televangelist. And he, I mean, he, it was simply brilliant. Some of the manipulations he staged were simply brilliant. For example, with the Iranian nuclear documents or orchestrating a presentation of documents that as Gareth Porter has reported for us at the Grayson were probably forged by the Mossad uh, and were laundered through the MEK. But Netanyahu's presentation um, was very effective in um, creating an atmosphere of hostility during the Trump administration to, to destroy the JCPOA. And he even said in his presentation, Mosen Valkrazadeh, watch, remember that name. And then they go and assassinate him. Um, Netanyahu has just been a commanding presence. And uh, he also was effective at undermining Obama and keeping, forcing Obama to constantly respond um, to Israel and pander to Israel in public, humiliating him at every stop. You replace Netanyahu with someone like Naftali Bennett. I mean, this guy is a schmagegi compared to Netanyahu. <laughs> he really is a small, I mean, he literally is a small man. But I mean, Net, Netanyahu was like part of the Sayeret Mahtal special forces unit that yeah. was in the Entebbe raid. He has like a real mm-hmm. connection. N- Bennett, you know, he carried out some massacres in Lebanon. Um, he was a, brags about it all the time. How they, everybody brags killed. about yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, but he's like, I actually, you know, met him once at this little like press conference he did where he had like this PR firm uh, introduce him to the international English language speaking media on his way towards uh, being eventually prime minister because he, you know, he knew which way Israeli society was going. It was religious nationalist. You got to wear a little knit kippa, and he he talked the talk. 
Um, and so the PR firm was helping to kind of kosher him uh, to the English speaking media that thought maybe he was too extreme. And he got like, he had a little sit down with the new Republic guy and he met with everyone except me. And like, I tried, I followed him into the parking lot, asking him questions that I wanted to ask him. And he just refused to speak to me, but I was just, he just felt like such a diminutive presence that I couldn't actually imagine him being prime minister. And now here he is, he's finally arrived. He speaks perfect English, but he's never, his, his, his shtick is never going to go. He doesn't even have a shtick. It's just not going to go over well in the U S and then he's got Yair Lapid whose father, Tommy Lapid ran this party. The whole party existed just based on the hatred of the ultra Orthodox Haredim and the uh, Arab population of Israel because they didn't serve in the military and the party had no meeting other than that. Yair Lapid you know, he spent some time in Hollywood. He was like the manager of Regent Studios. He was working for Arnon Milchan, who was, uh, he was, he was doubling as a Hollywood studio head and a Mossad agent who helped Israel sell uh, nuclear parts to South Africa. Wonderful guy. And, uh, you know, he's so made up, but it's absolutely true. It's so so wild. And Lapid, I mean, he's like, you know, he's, he soaked up that atmosphere, but again, he's like, a minor player. He's not, it's not like Netanyahu. Yeah. Netanyahu was like living practically in APAC headquarters when he was opposition leader and he was figuring out how to work Congress at every level. He was raised in the US. They just have no one who can replace him in his presence. And then you got these Benny Gantz characters who are just like th- th- these, these blood soaked killers who are like, uh, you know, we must. Uh, liquidate the Aravim, you know, he ran his, his, his campaign ad. I don't know if, um, I think he reported on this at EI, Benny Gantz, former chief of staff of the Israeli army. It's like the most respected position in Israel. His campaign ad was a images of Shujaia, the destroyed neighborhood or area East of Gaza city uh, with statistics on how many people were killed that with Gantz taking credit for it. That was his campaign ad. Yeah. And it's just like, you I'm just see rubble. It again. Right, that's right. Sending them back to the Stone Age. Exactly. So there's not going to be some great liberal Zionist deliverance. I, I'm, I think it's refreshing to see Netanyahu go and someone even crazier come into, come into, uh, come into power or a collection of uh, just complete whack jobs because it, it doesn't change anything about the trajectory of apartheid Israel, except that it's more exposed. And without someone like Trump in office to, to um, basically roll out the red carpet and enact the deal of the century, you're going to have tension. And the tension is really clear. I mean, you can say Biden took $3.2 million from the Israel lobby in the Senate. He said that if we didn't have Israel, we'd have to create it. It's all true. But Biden's constituency is people who are like, they kind of, you know, want to be decent people. They have those signs on their lawn that's or in front of their houses uh, that say like, we ex- believe in science, uh, all, love is love, uh, all, <laughs> all people are welcome here. We like mm-hmm. love refugees and we like anoint the sores on their feet. Like they don't, <laughs> they don't support this crap. So I'm I'm very encouraged about the political the, the 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 political shift 
that we're seeing now, including in Israel for, for those reasons. And I know we're supposed to be like, no, Naftali Bennett. No, it means that <laughs> what an Israel, Israel's going to start killing Arabs. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. Just continuing state policy there. I, I love what uh, Yahya Sinwar, the, the head of Hamas said the other day when discussing potential prisoner swaps, he said, you know, well, something like, well, um, We'll discuss. We'll negotiate a prisoner exchange as soon as Israel's political situation becomes stable. <laughs> Just thought that was. Man's <laughs> got swag. Serious, serious bravado. Well, he um, spent twenty-four years in an Israeli university, yeah, known as jail. Right, in jail, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way, uh, the Senate parliamentarian has just ruled that the billion dollars in aid that Israel's seeking. Uh, cannot go through oh oh wow. no i'm i'm joking they only do that on the 15 dollar minimum wage <laughs> i was like wait a second what's the catch <laughs> did lindsey graham just spontaneously explode like what what happened i mean where, what is the senate parliament i never heard of it before i don't know what that means they never stop anything that's bad they only stop <laughs> the, the good stuff yeah, yeah. Good Lord. well max thank you very much for joining us uh, for the podcast we really appreciate you coming on and we'll get you on again before too long um, and you are of course the editor of the gray zone and a wonderful journalist and colleague thanks again thanks thanks a lot nora tamara thanks for watching this video please subscribe to our youtube channel hit like leave a comment these engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.